0: And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mine, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. In continued honoring of Maternal Mental Health Awareness Month, we are touching on some of the very real and very difficult topics today. As part of that, I'll offer a sensitive topic alert as we are talking about the loss of a mother today. For those of you who know that you're not quite ready to listen to topics like the loss of a mother to postpartum mental health complications and suicide, please honor that and come back to listen at a later time when you'd like. Our guest, Stephen DiAchili, shares the story of his wife's life taken too soon because of postpartum mental illness. He shares with us all of the things that they tried to get her the help she needed but couldn't find. Also, how the loss of Alexis propelled Stephen into starting a foundation in her name to help make sure that anyone who went looking for help could find it. This topic of postpartum suicide is very important for us to understand and to know that it is a real risk to perinatal mothers. It is the second leading cause of death in the postpartum period and should be taken very seriously. Stephen takes it seriously, and as an advocate, husband, and dad, he is the president and founder of the Alexis Joy DeAquille Foundation for Postpartum Depression. He's a man advocating for maternal mental health issues because he realizes that women's health is a family health issue. And he also sees that the father and partner's mental health is often overlooked. His passion is creating access to care for families who are struggling, and I'm sure you will hear that in our conversation today. I've been able to get to know Stephen as we both are on the board of Postpartum Support International, and if you know him and know his story, you know how passionate he is about this cause and making sure that the loss of Alexis teaches all of us so that we know to not take postpartum mental health issues lightly. So let's meet Stephen. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I know you, and from serving on the PSI board together, it's been an honor to get to know you and your passion and the work that you do, and where all of this comes from for you. So, but not everybody who's listening right now knows you. So, I would, I would love for you to start a little bit with your story, wherever you'd like to
1: start. All right. Well. My name is Stephen D. Achille. I'm the president and founder of the Alexis Joy D. Achille Foundation for Postpartum Depression. And I guess the foundation came about when my daughter and I, or my wife and I, had our first child, a daughter named Adriana, Adriana Joy. And unfortunately, my wife did not survive her battle with postpartum depression. And kind of like everything in life you don't realize there's a need for something until you go to find it and it doesn't exist. Right. And in our case, my wife, basically, she had a traumatic birth. It was a code blue birth. Adriana, we had no doctor in the room. It was a nurse and myself. And she was told she had two, you know, two more hours before the baby was coming and was told that she could either, you know, start pushing now and waste her energy. And she wouldn't have it two hours from now when the baby was coming because it was, her first child. and Or she could save her energy and have it when she needed to start pushing two hours from them. About 12 minutes later, here comes Adriana. But her umbilical cord was wrapped a couple of times around her neck and she had no slack to come out. So it was this crazy, scary time. And I'm screaming, the nurse is screaming. My wife was just like paralyzed with fear. And we're screaming for someone to come in and cut the umbilical cord. Finally, another nurse comes in and at that time, you know, Code Blue Delivery is either mom or baby's life is at risk. Right. And in our case, it was our daughter's. And I remember as soon as Adriana cried, it was like the biggest relief in the world. But my yeah. we went from no doctors to dozens of doctors in the room, or at least what yeah. felt like dozens. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was around the baby. No one was around my wife. Mm-hmm. And I just remember looking over at her and it was like there was nothing behind her eyes. It was like, mm-hmm. it was just blank. And so from there, I spent two nights in the hospital with her there the whole time. And she seemed to kind of have it together, although she was having trouble with the baby's name. We we had named her Eliana, and then she changed her mind and wanted to name her Adriana. And it kind of started the cycle of her not being able to make decisions. And I mean, I guess ultimately we got her home and we were like every other first-time parents. We were clueless the first night. Adriana cried a lot. And by a lot, I mean she never stopped crying if she was awake. Yeah. She had trouble latching on. And all these things led Alexis to believe that, I don't even know if it was so much that she was a bad mom, mm-hmm. so much as that um, she really believed that her first act of motherhood was damaging her, her child.
0: Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah.
1: And, and it wasn't her fault. A doctor wasn't in the room. It wasn't, right. but she just kept saying, if I, she was convinced Adriana had some sort of neurological like brain damage mm-hmm. because she wasn't able to hold the baby in for two hours like the doctor told her. The doctor said, I have a multiple birth delivery next door and then I have a high-risk pregnancy. You're third in line.
0: Oh, oh my God. And,
1: yeah, it was awful. So she just, she put this tremendous amount of guilt on herself for not being able to hold her in, and <laughs> so that led to neurological testing on Adriana. Even when we got the results that said her brain was functioning normally, mm-hmm. she still was convinced that she had damaged Adriana. And so my mother-in-law was with us for two weeks, and she was she held it together pretty good for those two weeks. Uh, it's kind of hard to decipher what our first parent challenges versus what our you know normal fears and right. anxieties that any mom has. And at that time, I thought it was kind of normal. When I was juggling work and you know, all, you know, all the things that right. every parent has to juggle. And when my mother-in-law left, almost immediately, um, things started unraveling very quickly. And she was proactive, extremely proactive, and extremely scared, really, for where she was and she knew she
0: wasn't feeling right
1: yeah she was like this is not me i'm not supposed to be feeling like this something's wrong i need help and so i was trying to distract her taking her out doing doing whatever i could do to just keep her mind because she looked for help immediately and we ended up seeing like a licensed clinical social worker at the hospital where we delivered and we met with her and i remember she was crying and she was you know, telling her the doctor, I'm crazy. And she saying, no, you're not crazy. This is the baby blues. This is this, this is that. But in that first doctor's appointment, what she said was, well, you know, you have PTSD from the delivery. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I or my wife ever realized that you could get PTSD, you know, having a baby. We thought it was right. for, you know, service members that go to war. or, right, police right. or And it was kind of like, PTSD, all right. And so, and at that point, that was the first couple of days where she had had serious anxiety, like debilitating anxiety, where when you would talk to her, she would just take both of her hands and she would just run them down the, her throat and chest. Aww. And she would almost back up as you were talking to her. She would like slowly just back away. Yeah. And so that doctor kind of, or not doctor, but social worker, just went over basic coping mechanisms for stress, which involved counting backwards from 100 to zero in intervals of seven and bending over in the shower and putting the water on as hot as she could and bending over and you know, holding her ankles and letting the water run down her back. And then the only one that kind of helped her a little bit when she would be really bad with her anxiety was you know holding ice cubes in her hands or running her hands under cold water. Mm. But all of them seemed really ridiculous. options like it's like this is all we can do right now right and so from there i know we left that appointment and she just it was her very first appointment and she was like this that's the help they gave me no one no one's gonna help me no one's gonna help somebody like me Mm. and so then came you know every morning started exactly like the previous one just worse with her at the foot of the bed crying her eyes out hysterical hyperventilating so much anxiety, scared she was going to harm herself, didn't know how to turn the anxiety off, didn't know how to get out of her own mind. Mm -hmm. And so that led to, you know, phone calls with crisis centers where the option was, we can send a mobile unit to the house. And then the questions came, what are the neighbors going to think? What are, you know, what are people going to say about me? And there was just this huge shame and stigma associated with, you know, the options she was presented and so it was either like mobile units at the house or go to a psych ward of which there's three in pittsburgh one has horrible horrible stigma attached to it and you know it was always explained that if she explained to them what she was you know had said on the phone that she'd be locked up for you know in a quadrant with men on the floor that could be older and stronger and paranoid schizophrenics and you know you know, they always explained it as a mild behavioral mood disorder, but she would be in psych ward with people, you know, the worst mm-hmm. kind of behavioral mood disorders. And that's a scary option. And, right. and and at the time, as a father, I think I was asked to make decisions that I was not qualified to make. Oh, uh, right. It's
0: like your first problem. hearing about any kind of thing like this. And you're having to make a decision based on knowing really not a whole lot,
1: knowing nothing about postpartum depression at that point. It was still it's the baby blues. It's you're oh. going to get through this. It's mm. just go home, be be with friends, be with family. This you is know, weeks this, in. This is going to be. This is going to pass. This is like week two. Uh
0: huh.
1: And and we have this baby that will not eat, and I and I truly contribute Adriana's fussiness to I think that the stress and anxiety my wife was under was like tainting her milk. She got an infected milk done that was, I knew nothing about it, but it causes fevers. It's super painful and it prevented her more from breastfeeding. And she had like, she was so stuck in her mind that if you did not breastfeed your baby, you were a bad mom. Oh, I hate hearing that. It's happened so much. So much, and it's so much pressure, yeah. You know, from society, but even just women in general, because for so long, that's all you hear. They truly believe it to the point where she was, she was so ashamed and so embarrassed to. She couldn't even give a bottle of formula to her daughter in the privacy and safety of our own home.
0: Oh gosh, right? Nobody
1: would ever know. So Adriana
0: wasn't getting a lot of food.
1: No, and they had her on, you know. Medication for acid, and I forget what it was called. You know, what I'm going. The baby's two weeks old. What do you mean she's going on prescription meds for for like acid reflux and stuff? This is crazy. Right. And so it just seemed like everything that most mothers that mothers are supposed to take on to naturally, she struggled with, and she just beat herself up over it so bad. And so started with the PTSD, went into the depression. Crazy amounts of crying insomnia decision making was
0: right.
1: impossible right. it was yeah. absolutely impossible, and she did not eat i mean when she when she passed you know Adriana was five and a half weeks old, and she was ten pounds under her pre pregnancy weight, and she was oh. always a very thin person mm-hmm. so you 're talking like fifty pounds in five and a half weeks she lost
0: oh. <sighs> And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to mysteries about true histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clux.
2: You've come to the right place.
1: Yeah. She's not eating. She would just push food around. And she would talk to me about, you know, I'm worried about your diet. We need to to eat more fruits. We need to eat more vegetables. And she kind of started blaming the food we were eating on why she wasn't eating that much. Even Mm -hmm. though I come from a big Italian family. We own restaurants. We love to cook. I mean, I was cooking homemade good meals every night, but it just in her head wasn't what we were supposed to be eating.
0: Right. So is this pretty different from how she normally was, then? I mean, is this like the behavior oh, that you're describing? Okay, right.
1: So she I mean in general, she was a very organized, very type A, very ambitious, very together person. She was mm-hmm. the person that everyone that knew her went to for advice because she was always so level. She never had a, any kind of, you know, history with mental illness. But she did like to know what's going to be for dinner. What time are we going to eat dinner? She was very structured. Mm-hmm. She, had a, you know, she wouldn't put reminders in her phone because she would tell me that's irresponsible. So she had her planner. Everything had to be written down because you remember it better if it's written down. And that's how she operated. I was the, I'm was, the kind of person, I have all my bills on auto pay, so I don't miss anything. She would be like, no, you have to call and go through it and make sure there's no charges mm-hmm. that aren't so She was very organized and together. She wouldn't go to... You know, the house was always spotless. She would never go to bed if there was a ditch in the sink or there was, you know, laundry in the washing machine. And I'm polar opposite of that. I let everything <laughs> right. And but she always managed everything so well. She never had a problem with it until Adriana came. And so I think you know some of it was obviously the the delivery, and I think the PTSD and the anxiety and all that, coupled with Everybody, when they have a first child, things are not orderly. You don't sleep right. when you're supposed to. It's, everything's a mess. you know. And it was, it was yeah. a lot for her. It's like a total and, upheaval, right? Yeah, a total upheaval. And so she, she really struggled. And it, it just really became a situation where she knew she needed to be on medicine. She needed to do something. And that started this OBGYN slash psych doctor silos in healthcare where neither mm-hmm. one wants to see you because there's too much stick or there's too much liability. So they I believe understand how serious this is more than the general population does and when she would call the OB the OB was like, "Well, this is really a psychiatric issue. You need to call a psychiatrist and get on meds." And then when we would call, if we could even get a hold of a psychiatrist, right. it was like, "Well, really the first line of defense is the OB. It's because of the baby, you need okay. to see your OB." And so we were able to get an OB I mean, a psych appointment, but it was for more than two months down the road. Oh
0: my gosh. And you're like in crisis right now. You, I mean, you can't wait complete, two
1: months. Yeah, this was, I mean, imagine myself, my whole family, our good friends, my godmother, cousins. I mean, this was around the clock care, never leaving her alone. And we had a dog. Ha- I still have my dog, Lucy, but Lucy was like her everything before we had Adriana. And they were mm-hmm. so close. And it was like she wouldn't go anywhere without the dog. And so it was like, we had to find people to watch her and the dog around the clock. You could never leave her alone. And so ultimately the same thing that happens everywhere was the only appointment we could get was with the OB. She had filled out screening stuff at the pediatrician's office, which I didn't learn until after she had already passed. You know, her answers were horrifying what she wrote on the screening tools. And because of HIPAA, the pediatrician was not even allowed to call me and she's a family friend. It wasn't until the funeral when I saw her and she's crying saying, I wanted to tell you, but here's, an, here's a pediatrician's office that has no resources for right. women like my wife that go in. Right. And so, you know, all these symptoms and all, you know, the just life spiraling out of control. She sees her OB, she goes in, talks to the OB and the OB pr- puts her on it, an antidepressant and says this is going to take two weeks to kick in, and so she starts it. And I mean, right away, when she got on this antidepressant, she started having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideations. Mm. She was scared to death of these antidepressants, and me as the husband, I'm going, no. The doctor said you need to take it, you need to stick with it. And she's going, I'm telling you, I, you know, I was, I had anxiety, I was depressed, I had all these problems, but I did not have scary thoughts. Oh, gosh. And so we scheduled a follow-up appointment with, when the thoughts got really serious, she went back to her to her OB and said, listen, something's wrong. I don't think I should be on these. And she said, no, they take two weeks to kick in. It's because they haven't kicked in. And she doubled the dose. Okay. And so she came home, we had a discussion, and she said, they want to double my dose. And I said, well, then that's what you have to do because they're the doctors. And I have no family history of mental health issues. No one in my family's ever been on anything. It's, I had no idea how scary and dangerous some of these drugs can be. And so I always urge everyone that has a loved one going on them, make sure they're being screened properly for family history. Because there are certain antidepressants that if another family member, say, has bi- been diagnosed with bipolar, right. that you absolutely should not take. Right. In this case, you know, she has family members that had been diagnosed with bipolar before and she should never have been prescribed what she was prescribed. Right. And, so she,
0: she herself had, didn't have any symptoms of a bipolar disorder but uh, prior, uh, but there were family members who did. And since she wasn't being seen by a specialist, like a psychiatrist, they weren't doing a full
1: screening. Right. Now they, I mean, she had told them about these other family members, but it was, You know, it was crazy. It was like we were always told there was three psych units that emergency room psych units that we could go to. We ultimately went to seven different facilities that offered some sort of psychiatric help. But everywhere we went, nobody listened to her. Everybody just looked at her and they would ask her questions. And even on her worst day, she was very beautiful and put together and dressed well and her hair looked nice. And she was very well spoken. and. Actually, everyone used to tell her, you should have been a news anchor. You, you speak so well. You're like She was just very succinct and very, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but she was, so it was like, it wasn't, she was just always being judged for one reason or another. And she grew up very religious. Her father was a minister and she had an MBA and she had, and so it was all, they were always finding reasons, the doctors, why she was going to be okay.
0: Oh gosh. So they weren't really listening, like you said.
1: Right. And so I would say, if there, if, you know, mm-hmm. is there a right way to say I'm going to kill myself that's serious versus not serious? That's because always she, was serious. Telling them,
3: mm-hmm.
1: she was telling them point blank, this is not going to end well. I don't know how to make, as calm as I'm saying it right now, I don't know how to make the anxiety stop. I can't see any other way out. I've tried everything. I can't live like this. Something how- bad is going to happen. And she was begging to be admitted impatient. So,
0: what? So, th- this is for months
1: now. So, this was from about two weeks. Well, for about three and a half weeks, we saw treatment. She ended up, well, she ended up hanging herself in our basement exactly 14 days after she started the antidepressant. And she had an OB appointment the day before it happened. And she went back, and the original social worker that we had talked to the first time that gave her the coping strategies for the anxiety. She actually told her, you know, the doctor that missed the delivery is a young doctor. She was very young. And she said, and what she did to you was unacceptable. And you need to tell her. And so that appointment, you know, everything, the medicine had been doubled. All that was taken care of. But the point of that appointment was for my wife to explain to their doctor what she did wrong and why And look at the suffering I'm going through because your inability to be there to deliver the child. And I don't think that any patient, that is not that patient's responsibility to have those conversations. Not at all. But she made the appointment. She went in and she said, why did you do this? Why did you miss the delivery for my baby? And she swore to her that she would sit vigilantly next to her bedside for the next baby we had and but she was not happy. She was not happy at all. Mm-hmm. And she she basically I dropped her off, my mother stayed with her for the appointment and then I met both of them and picked her up and it was like all the anxiety everything was gone. Hmm. And everything I mean it was I was like what happened in there? And she just said I know what I have to do now. I'm thinking too far down the road. And I said, "Well, what did the doctor say?" And she said She said to her that she wasn't cut out for motherhood and that she should go on birth control and not have any more children.
0: Wait, what? Wait, the OB told her that?
1: Yes. Are you Because she was probably pissed off (gasps) that my wife went in there, (gasps) you know, reaming her out for missing the delivery of the baby. Holy no. And it was like, and I really, truly believe that after that appointment, she had, she knew what she knew the end was near oh. um and so we but she it was like I took a picture of her standing over the changing table.
0: I know that picture,
1: and she's smiling at her, and that was a picture that I took to send to her parents to say, "Hey, it's been two weeks. It looks like the antidepressants are kicking in, her anxiety's gone, mm-hmm. she says she hasn't figured it out. she says you know she's she's thinking too far, blah 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 like she she seems to be in a good place and I remember that night, my daughter was so restless and she just cried and cried and cried. I would always go in the nursery. I mean, she was so proud of this nursery. It was the most beautiful (laughs) nursery she made for her and decorated. And we had this big rocker and I would go in there and I would play like cold play and music, different music that I liked. And the baby would calm down and I would just hold her. And she would always say, how are you so good with her? Why? I don't know how you're so good with her. And I, I feel nothing for her. And I, I have no connection with her. And all she does is cry when she's around me. And I just don't understand it. And I would say, babe, I'm not doing anything special. I'm, I'm literally just holding her. And listen, we're just listening to music. and But every time you would put Adriana back down, she would start screaming again. So it was like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I was trying. Her big thing was, you're, you think I'm crazy. You're going to leave me. I don't deserve mm-hmm. you. I'm going to lose you. I'm going to lose the baby. And the more my parents and loved ones would watch her, she would say, I'm on like suicide watch. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. I'm going to be labeled a crazy person for the rest of my life. Like no one's ever going to look at me the same. And so even at home, I would say like, lay down, I'll take care of the baby. And I would try to give her her privacy, you know, in the bedroom. I, I would... You know, I was instructed by an emergency room psychiatrist in a, you know, we were in a glass room that locked from the outside with a psych doctor and a social worker in there. And this was on our wedding anniversary, October 3rd. And I remember she, I came home with, i kind of digressing and going a m- bunch of directions, but I come home with flowers and jewelry for her for our anniversary. And she just started crying saying, I don't deserve this. And mm, she was I, suffering. Yeah. And she, she ended up, you know, she was crying her eyes out because she wanted to be the perfect wife and she wanted Mm -hmm. to put a nice dress on and she wanted to put her heels on and go downtown and, you know, and have a nice dinner because she thought that's what she had to do to be a good wife. And she just said, babe, I can't put heels on tonight. I can't put a dress on. And I'm like, you're fine. And so I said, you know what, we're going to the city no matter what tonight. I said, put your, she had these little pair of gold flat shoes that she always wore and her little, trench coat and she put it on and I said, you know, we're gonna go to the city, but we're gonna go to the ER. And we drove down and we were in the car and it was like, I think for me, it was the first time she said, Babe, I think I know what we have to do. And I said, what's that? And she said, I think we should just give Adrian up for adoption. And I said, what? And she said, Yeah, we had the perfect life. Uh Everything was perfect before we had this baby. We could just give her to a great family we'll raise her and we can just go back to us we can just go back to the to the way life was before and i'm going babe we can't just give our i mean what are you saying
0: right and i
1: think that was when i really realized how serious this problem was
0: Uh right so and she's talking to you calmly like it's just a good idea
1: like no anxiety because she was thinking maybe i would go along with this right and so we get to the hospital and the, I'm talking to the doctor. I'm talking to the social worker. They have each of us together. They have each of us alone. And this doctor comes in, it was kind of towards the end. And she's saying, I need to go back there behind the one glass wall. And he's going, you're not that you think you're crazy. You haven't seen crazy till you've gone back there. You are not like them." And part of me believes she's not. She was just suffering from a perinatal mental. I don't think that was the right place for her. I do think that was the safe place for her. Mm-hmm. But I think moms deserve more than that. I didn't have the heart to to insist that she goes back there. And so I said, doc, what do I have to do? Like, I don't know what to do. I'm scared something bad's going to happen. And he said, listen, girls like her would never commit suicide in a sloppy way. My God. She would never, ever want anyone to not remember her looking her best. There's only two ways a woman like her commits suicide. And he said that's asphyxiating themselves in their garage with their vehicle, or overdosing on pills.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And so he instructed me to go home, take all the car keys, lock them up, and get any prescription pills out of the house. And I took, I took Tylenol out of the house. I mean, I took everything. And sure enough, she hung herself. And it just pisses me off so bad that I was so naive and trusted these doctors with I everything. It. I get it. And so... You know, there's a lesson in that, though, for other dads. You know, I don't think any doctor I know. There's no doctor in the world that could ever know your spouse the way you do. So, right. I would always say you need to advocate for your wife or your loved one when they're not able to. Right. And if something seems wrong, do not accept their answer until you get the answer you want. And I wish I could go back and do that for her, but I can't. And so, yeah, it was just a a, a total nightmare. I mean, you
0: guys—you guys tried over and over and over and over to get help.
1: Seven different hospitals and different mental health facilities in 13 days.
0: And she and literally was asking to be inpatient, and nobody would would give her
1: the help. No, they all just said, "Go home and be friends. Go be with friends and family. Do not." Are you kidding? You're not like them. You're not crazy. You're religious. The hell you're does educated. that mean? You no. seem to be financially secure. No. It was all reasons why she wouldn't do it. And it's ridiculous. And so I, that, you know, to me, from my perspective, I remember I found her like a minute or two after she did it. And so I cut her down. I called 911. I, I, you know, did all the mouth to mouth and chest compressions and all that, you know, and they finally, the paramedics showed up and they took her to one hospital close to our house. And then they life flighted her to a bigger hospital in the city. And when I got down there, one of my childhood best friends' dad's a neurologist, and he actually worked at the first hospital we were at. And he somehow beat me down to the other hospital. And when I got there, he was just waiting. And he pulled me aside and he said, "Steven, I wanna—I just don't want you to get your hopes up. You know, I looked at all of her X-rays and everything, and you know, her her neck's broken, and she's she's not going to make it. And so that was like two and a half days in intensive care." before she ended up passing. And I mean, that was torture. You know, There's uh, so yeah. many people from out of town, all, all her fa- friends and fans. She was from New Jersey and had a house in Florida. And so all their family, friends from Florida and New Jersey, and there had to be a hundred, all her work colleagues, there had to be a hundred people every day more at the hospital.
3: Right.
1: And I'm just looking at her and she looked as beautiful as ever. She didn't look like she was dead or dying. Uh, I mean, outside of all the machines hooked up to her, but I just remember looking at her being like, this is so unfair. I had this little girl that doesn't have a mom and I'm a guy and how the hell am I supposed to raise this daughter? And I just thinking about all the people, like how many people had to drop the ball for for her to be in this situation right now for, to be, you know, it is hard to tell doctors and loved ones that you're, you know, thinking about taking your own life. Right. Holding your five week old baby.
3: Right.
1: And to muster the courage up to do that and to every single time be told, You're fine, just go home. You'll be fine. You know, how disheartening. It's no wonder we have this maternal mortality rate that's the right. highest of any developed country in the world. It's because if you if you're strong enough and smart enough and brave enough to ask for help it it doesn't exist in most parts of the country. And she truly is. A, I mean, a, the system failed her. And Absolutely. I, I, when we were in intensive care for those two days, um, my childhood priest who I was close with, he was like the most awesome guy. He passed last year, but he, he came to talk to me. And he just got me away from everybody and said, I'm, I got to talk to you right now. And I said, all right. We went into this little room and he was just... I don't know. It was like this calm that I've never felt in my entire life. And this clarity came over me. And I'm talking about like, this was a time when I was emotionally, physically, and mentally sick. Of course. I would just shake, vomit. Yeah. I couldn't even speak. No. And I went from that state to a state where I went from that state to the calmest I've ever been in my entire life. And the clearest my mind has ever worked. It was like, it was the weirdest thing. And we just talked. And I don't know, it could have been hours or it could have been 20 minutes. But when it was over, I didn't want the calm to end. And so I locked myself on the floor in the bathroom in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I had a pen and paper. And it was just so clear that something needed to be done. And so I, Came up with the name of the foundation and decided that at her funeral, we would raise money to build a facility that she didn't have access to and that it would keep mothers and babies together because that was one of the big things. She did not want to be separated from Adriana inpatient. And we just, it was so clear. So I wrote everything down and we were going to have this black tie gala on the week of her birthday. Every single year, we were going to celebrate her life every year instead mm-hmm. of mourning her every year on her birthday. And then we would raise proceeds to to build the center that, uh, you know, I'm happy that open, it, it's open. It's 7,300 square feet. It's in the most amazing hospital here in Pittsburgh, in West Penn Hospital. And we have world-class staff. And we treated 3,000 moms and their babies. Already? And, Yeah. Well, just in 2019 alone, we had borrowed space in the hospital, which went from one room to three different parts of the hospital for three years prior. Mm -hmm. And so we built this amazing facility and the health system gave me a say in every single aspect of the facility from the look and feel of it to the, you know, we offer yoga, meditation, mindfulness, art therapy. I love food, obviously with a restaurant background. So we have a chef's demo kitchen, where the women and their husbands, if nothing else, and they're, they're with them. We have dietitians and nutritionists that come in and teach them how to cook healthy meals for, for mental health. Great. And then when they leave, Amazing. they leave with a box of all the ingredients that they use that day to take home and prepare a meal. It's brilliant. Yeah. And so they have all these, you know, you know mother-baby-infant massage, and there's lactation consultants there during know, all hours that they're open and there's, if a woman just wants to sleep, she can sleep. There's intensive, you know, group therapy as well as one-on-one therapy. And so it's just this amazing facility. But we, we, we did the same thing out of borrowed space in the hospital for three years before. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the program was how can we build a program? Um, and I always say that where women get the care they deserve, because what we do is give women the care they deserve. Women have deserved so much more than they would been getting for so long. Right. So yeah, we have this place and and so and it just sometimes it amazes me. I sit back and I think about it like 3000 people in 2019. But that's, that's 3000 women, that's 3000 babies, right. that's 3000 partners and yeah. thousands more grandparents, and people that their loved one, you know, you they get their life back and it really is a testament to the fact that this is family health, not not women's health.
0: Right. <sighs> yeah, and this whole sp- span of time—your daughter is how old now?
1: She's six and a half.
0: So, essentially, six and a half years ago, this horrible tragedy happened, and since then, you've been tirelessly, like, nonstop, Stephen. I see. I see how your brain works, especially when we're sitting together, and I know how hard you work. There isn't like I'm sure a day that goes by or a moment that goes by that you haven't poured your heart and soul into this. And it shows. Thank you. You're a tireless advocate. And in part because it comes from such a tragedy and so much pain, like that clarity that you were describing. You knew that this needed to happen. You knew that your wife needed this and the fact that you've built this and are continuing to build. This isn't like, from what I understand, this is the first, and, and you're This is ready. the
1: first, and I, I, there will be more this year. I can yes. say that. There will be more this year. My hope is that we can kind of make a huge impact regionally yeah. versus the national averages and kind of quantify. It's an interesting aspect right now because, and I feel privileged as a male to advocate in this field because six years ago there was none, really. There was a couple, maybe worldwide that we're really speaking out about it. And I think it's important to have a father's perspective on it. And so I I feel lucky in that, right, that I can give insight into the father side of things. And also, and I can speak to what it's like to be a single dad with a little girl that doesn't have a mom. But then now as my daughter gets older, I get to see what it's like through a child's eyes. And I can speak, and I haven't really spoke that much about how it affects children or how it's affected my daughter. And with that, you know, the costs associated with it. Mm -hmm. I know myself, you know, I went to the ER four times the first year she passed with panic attacks. You know, what was the cost of that? I know my wife's ICU bills were in excess of $800,000 plus the seven other appointments she was at. And now my daughter's in therapy every, you know, once a week. And that's not going to be, I mean, she's a healthy Awesome, amazing, intelligent, perfect kid. But, like, she, you know, when she goes to bed at night, she's robbed of the happy thoughts that most kids think about. She sits and wonders about her mom. And Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. has this fear that, well, if her mom died, so could all the adults in my life that I love. And so she has fears that I'm going to die. She has fears that my parents will die. Mm -hmm. She, she, she worries about death. If I travel, she worries about the plane crashing. So she struggles with that. And it's not going to be a, you know, six-month fix, this is going to be maybe 10, 15 years right. of therapy. So what's the true cost of not treating my wife when you think about me and my mother-in-law being hospitalized after her daughter died? Right. And it's just so unnecessary. It's like just open facilities and do the right thing.
4: I agree
0: with you a thousand percent.
4: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
3: Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.
0: Right. I mean, in the way you talk about the work that you do, because you have so much passion behind it too, it's so, you're so clear about what is right to do in these situations. Like there should be multiple, many, many, many of these facilities all over the country. And there, there's a couple here popping up, you know, here and there, but not nearly enough for the amount of devastation that so many families experience because of untreated perinatal mental health conditions. It's preventable.
1: And and there's so many women that eventually get better years later, but their marriages have ended in divorce. Mm -hmm. Their children grow up in broken homes. And that's what this disease does. It robs children of a real childhood that every child deserves. And those ramifications, I mean, it's unthinkable. It's hard for me to, I call this common sense healthcare.
3: It like is. Why,
1: how can we not offer these services to women everywhere and families everywhere? And it's the right thing to do. And it's so important too, I think, for people to realize that this is just not, this doesn't just affect women that you know have a baby, that we have more women in treatment that are still pregnant right. and suffering from these symptoms. And then- But there's so many women that, you know, are faced with horrible decisions while pregnant when they, you know, find out something's wrong with their baby or miscarriages or even infertility. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, and I had no idea. It took me a while after my wife died and I started getting educated, you know, in this area to realize how many women are are actually affected and how many families. I mean, I think there's not a family in America that hasn't been touched by this in one way or another.
0: Right. Whether they know it or not. Because it's still so secretive,
1: yeah. For your listeners, this is a disease that affects twice as many women every year as breast cancer. Mm-hmm. As I always tell everybody, or you know, or the fact that we have laws in this country that prevent puppies being separated from their from their mom until mm-hmm. they're twelve weeks old. Yet the only option for my wife and for humans. It's just separate mom from baby. We protect our animals more than we protect moms in this that country.
0: That is very real, Stephen.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an outrage. It's an outrage. It's an outrage.
1: Gets, you know what I mean? Imagine a world where you, you get diagnosed with breast cancer and they respond to breast cancer the same way they respond to maternal mental health issues. And they say, you know, you got this diagnosis, you have breast cancer. Unfortunately, we don't offer services for this. Right. So just go home and be with friends and family and it's going to work its way out. Ludicrous. It's crazy, but it's real. That's it our reality. That's yeah. where we're at in this country. And so, how did it get this bad? Well,
0: yeah that that's like a whole that's a whole lot of discussion yeah. right there. It is bad, and a lot of people are suffering for it. I see it day in and day out with my own clients and in my practice, and the, me having to help them figure out how to advocate for what they already know that they need, but providers are telling them that they well, don't need it. It's what's ridiculous.
1: equally exciting about horrific stats like that is I know it's going to work and I know we're going to open centers everywhere because I want to meet the healthcare executive that I talked to that says my wife didn't deserve more
3: or right. their daughter
1: wouldn't deserve more. Yep. And they're, we're going to get to the point where they're not going to have a choice. They're going to have to start opening facilities with that. And that was the big thing with getting the first one open here
0: mm-hmm. was
1: if we build it, other people will be forced And that's why I like to share my story, because listeners from other parts of the country, you know, they can say why, you know, and they should go to their healthcare providers and they should say, why do women in Pittsburgh have access to a center like this, but we'll use Kansas City? Why do women in Kansas City have no resources for this? Mm -hmm. What makes women, you know, why do women in Pittsburgh get this, but we don't? And that's what people need to ask. And I think that's a a big part of, I think a big part of that is on dads to get involved during pregnancy. and to ask these questions. And I think just educating men will help, will help to ask these questions. Yeah. So, and the reality is a lot of healthcare executives are men as well. So we we need to engage in, in our system. I mean, that was what was so shocking. Everyone's like, there's men involved in this program. The executives are men. There's yeah. And guess what? I think fundamentally, I think guys want to do better. I just think that things have not changed for generations the only thing that's changed is women have to do more right. you know they earn just as much money as their partners usually if in a lot of cases more but they still are they're still mom and so there's this right. unfair bias uh, and double standard in this country between motherhood and fatherhood and so that's kind there of is. where I want to take the foundation at least for me is what what makes sense to me is hey let's engage dads for the yeah. benefit of mom
0: I agree with you. And, and very specifically because it, like speaking from peer to peer, male to male, partner to partner of someone who's dealing with this is really impactful because your voice and what you have to say and what you want to tell people coming from another guy is very different. Like you're saying, Hey, I went through this. This is a, such a real possibility and your being involved could help prevent these kinds of things happening to the people that you love—that message is needed. And
1: you well, know. and it's not like a degrading thing. I and mean, it's like no. it's not what you say; it's how you say it. And so sure. I think, I think for most dads, you know, and it's the same thing with healthcare. I, I feel like for a lot of healthcare systems, fixing the problem is almost an, an acknowledgement that they weren't doing enough to begin with. And yeah. maybe there's some hidden not really hit it, but maybe there's some liability with it. But mm-hmm. it's like, just because the problem, we can't ignore the problem forever. Right. And so that's why there's power in voices and there's power in storytelling. And there's, I get calls every single day of my life from dads and from fathers, oh. you know, the grandfather that say my daughter's struggling, that yeah. I had someone from Naples, Florida call me yesterday. And, you know, it's not that he's a bad dad. No. We, we don't know what to do. Because right. there's resources. And, right. they're, and, they're saying, and guys are stepping up and they're saying, what do I do? How can I do more? How, you know, how can I protect my wife? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a bigger part of the, you know, the pregnancy and be a more hands-on dad? Because I, I, I just think we've been excluded. I've talked to OBs that say it's actually strange. Outside mm-hmm. of the sonogram, I don't know the exact statistics, but I talked to one OB that said probably less than 10% of dads go to a single doctor's appointment. Outside of the sonogram or the right. ultrasound.
0: Right.
1: And, but why? I right. know people work, but there's a lot of doctor's appointments.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, like, I think, right, you're, you're talking about a cultural shift. And to your very point that, I mean, we are in a stage of parenthood and fatherhood that there might not have been an example of how to do this a different way. And so you and people like you who are getting involved are creating the way of how to do this.
1: Right, so the, one of the really like common sense things with our program is there's a couple things I like to brag on our program about do but it. there's yes. not, there's so like when you tour everybody tours labor and delivery before they actually give birth in their labor and delivery part of their hospital. And so with our facility like you see labor and delivery and then you also see our facility. Mm-hmm. So, if mom's struggling when you get home, and we show a video of Alexis's story to every mother that gives birth in our health system, it tells Alexis's story, and so they they're familiar with the facility, they're familiar with the story, and guess what? It works. Right. They know there's you the know. Safe place. And dad watches it with mom before they leave the hospital, so they're right away more educated. When we built the program, it was a very it was so fresh. Because we started, I mean, we went to work immediately. We had our first gala six months after she passed on her birthday. We raised six-figure money that that very first gala, which kind of gave us some money to keep moving forward. But it was always, you know, we, we built the facility with the perspective of what are the barriers to care? Mm-hmm. What prevented us mm-hmm. from getting the help she needed? and And that led to, you know, a lot of other problems with insight from other people that maybe we didn't necessarily face, but transportation to and from. And so we were able to get deals where women can get free transportation to and from their homes to the facility and back. So that, that gets rid of that barrier. We, you know, we offer childcare not just for the baby mom just had that's in the facility, but all of the children in the family. Mm, That's awesome. Yes. And like, guess what happens if moms can bring, Their babies with them. They They go to the appointments. They show up. It's like not that crazy. It's common sense.
0: It is. It's super common sense.
1: And if we're doing it here, why can't it be done everywhere?
0: Well, I think you're on the way. And you, I mean, obviously, like you need to partner with systems in order for this to happen everywhere. Systems that are already in place, who I agree with you want to do something better but don't know how to do it or, uh, you know, are in the planning stages of some kind. There's a groundswell, and you are a big part of that. Your foundation and the work that you're doing and involving fathers, um, like it, what you're doing is so vital and so important. And it is really changing the face across the United States, hopefully soon, of how perinatal care happens. It's yeah. absolutely necessary.
1: It's, it's got to be the new standard of care. It yes. has to be.
0: Yes. And it I'm a
1: firm be. believer that every hospital that has a labor and delivery should have to offer. Facilities like we offer here in Pittsburgh.
0: Yes. Did everybody hear that out there? (laughs) Like, you and right. And to your point that you said earlier, people can advocate. I think people forget how strong their voices can be in saying, like, why don't we have this here? I need this. And the more people that speak up about it, not that it's your individual problem to solve, but the more that an administration of a hospital, let's say, hears that the need is there the more likely it is to happen. Um, in all honesty, like I have tried myself to start free support groups at hospitals. Um, like they didn't have to pay me at all. I would walk in there, do the group, and they would say there's not enough need. And I'd, I'd say like I, I'm offering to do this for free out of my po- – like no no cost right. to you. Why won't you just let me do this for the community? Uh, no, we don't see that there's a need. Or no, you're going to try and like – I don't know. Well, right, so. and so
1: like and my response to that is okay, this is you know, like it's undeniable. This is the number one complication mm-hmm. during pregnancy and right. up to a year after childbirth. Right. So like is it necessary to treat moms with gestational diabetes? Absolutely it is.
0: Yes.
1: And they get to see the doctor every week. Right. You know, I think the right. last trimester of their pregnancy once they're diagnosed with it or once they're diagnosed with it. So mm-hmm. how can you have doctors in a need for that? when it's not even close to as prevalent as this issue. Right. And so I, I think, you know, part of it is my perspective is very different because I got so lucky with the health system and the health in the health network that I work with. And they're like, yeah, this is common sense. Absolutely. And I, I'm not used to hearing no. I really am not. But it just frustrates me so bad to hear other people when they when these health systems say no because I'm like, how the heck can you deny moms this this treatment and families this yeah. treatment? And and it the interesting thing I would add about our facility, not just our facility, but spouses, people in my shoes, you mm-hmm. know it, marriage marriages what it does to the men is oftentimes women they will not get treatment, and then they either end in divorce or whatever, or the women are in treatment, but the men have had to step up, go to work, take care of the baby, worry about their wives all the time, then the men end up in treatment as well, right they end up with 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 psychiatric problems and so it's like it's just destroying everyone and everyone that it touches and everyone that's i mean it's it, it's and it's, it's preventable it's yeah prevent- and it's preventable it's and, treatable and you,
0: preventable and you have a program that shows that
1: right and why can't women speak about this like my sisters both had gestational diabetes they, they weren't ashamed by it they it was just right. part of you know part of pregnancy they'll tell their friends yeah. all about yeah. it you yeah. know yeah. it's yeah. not but with yeah. no shame right but because it's well, mental health, there's all the shame.
0: I know. And that's a big part of the work that you're doing, a big part of the work that I'm doing and trying to make it more commonplace that like, let's just talk about it and let's fix it. It it doesn't have to be rocket science, just like you're figuring out.
1: Yeah. So the motivating thing is to see where things were six years ago, not just in Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. but nationally to see where things were and to see where they are right now. I know the work that and how much work you put into it. And you know i think it's i think it's paying off i i know mm-hmm. the first couple you know conventions and stuff i went to everyone i talked to seemed so pessimistic and broke from fighting with their health systems for so long and always hearing no and when you go to the psi conference like there's energy and it's positive mm-hmm. right, energy right. and it's like now's the time and it's and things are moving along i think quicker than any of us could realize mostly due in part to the Certain advocates like you in certain parts of the country, but the question is, I guess, how do we how do we expand our audience and how do we start conversations in other parts of the the country? And so,
0: well, that's one of the things I appreciate about you and how your brain works is that you know you're not in a silo. (laughs) You are able and and aren't sort of conditioned by siloed thinking and you are thinking outside of the box and and bringing other aspects in. And I I think that's part of how you've been so successful in expanding all of this. Um, So I appreciate so much what you're doing Um, and there's still so much that we could talk about, about the work that you do. But if you can leave us with some additional hope, some things that you're.
1: You know, for me, for my daughter and for all the people that loved Alexis, I guess it is, it's too late, but it's not for my daughter. It's not for yours. It's not for, it's not for the next generation. And I, I believe with every fiber of my being, I'm confident when my daughter has a baby that, and she's predisposed to this because of her mother. But I know I'm not going to stop until I know she's safe when, she, when, when it's her time to have babies and the care will be there for her. And I think we all have a great opportunity to make a huge impact, to to create, I think, the biggest change in healthcare. How do you make a splash in healthcare in 2020? This is it. This is it. And and I know it's going to work. And so, and I would tell everyone, even if it's not, even if it's not, you know, maternal mental health related or family health related, this journey I've been on has been, without a doubt, the most fulfilling experience I could ever imagine. And it has brought so many Amazing people and friends into my life. And so I would encourage anybody, like we all have an obligation to give back and to leave this world a little better than we found it. And mm-hmm. I would encourage everybody to find something that they're passionate about and put some time in and mm-hmm. do something selfless for someone else. And you would not, not imagine the blessings that come into your life from it. So really, it's just this journey has taught me how to be a better person today than I was then. And I always hate the till death do us part thing with weddings because I'm still so attached to, to, to Alexis. Yeah. She still makes me a better person every single day. Mm-hmm. She still drives to, you know, she's made me step out of my shell and do things that I was so uncomfortable with. That I would, I said, I wouldn't, I'd have bet my life on it that I would have never done any of the things I've done right. since she passed. And so she has made me grow so much as a person through this. So it's, she's still feeding me every day. So. Mm-hmm. That's it. The
0: work that you're doing to honor her is is nothing short of amazing and beautiful. And I, I just you. appreciate you and your heart and your passion and your drive so much. I'm glad to know you, and I'm so honored Likewise. that you came on to share your story and Alexis's story here with us today. So thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely,
1: and we got to do this again because I, I we're just scratching the surface.
0: Oh, yeah. We're not done. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right. We're not done. <laughs> Thank You're you, You're the Steven. best. Thanks, Kat. You're the best. Awesome. Take care. All you right. Too. Bye.
0: As you heard, this is a very real condition that needs a lot of more of attention from all of us. After having listened to this, certainly if you feel like you are concerned for yourself or someone you love, please know that services are available. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, you can find the Alexis Joy Center by going to alexisjoyfoundation.org. You can connect with the foundation on Facebook at Alexis Joy D. and on Instagram at AJD Foundation. Also available internationally is Postpartum Support International at postpartum.net. There are a wealth of resources on the website and also a helpline that you can call into and get connected to support in your local area. In this day and age, there's no reason that a mom should be left without the treatment that she needs and deserves. And by all of us putting in our part and sharing this information and sharing the resources, we can continue to make sure that we don't lose another mom. If this is your first time joining us on the Mom and Mind podcast, please do subscribe so you can get every episode downloaded directly to you as soon as it's dropped and share the podcast with at least one person who you know who could benefit from this information. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com.